A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a long-time listener, if you're just testing the waters for the first time, I understand, you know, people stumble across this program and they want to see, okay, what's this all about? You're going to tell me what I want to hear or are you going to go a different direction? Well, that all depends. Are you looking for truth? I don't have all the truth, but I'm going to tell you things that will help you better discern the truth. And I have a special guest who can really shine some light on truth. I want to introduce you to Tara Tenney. She is the daughter of Lavoie Finnicum. That's a name that's going to ring a bell for a lot of people. Tara, I I introduce you as Lavoie's daughter. You are much more than just his daughter. Tell us just a little bit about yourself for the sake of people meeting you for the first time. Sure. Thank you. I am a mother of four wonderful human beings, boys, and a, a wife of Tom Tenney and the daughter of Lavoie and Jeanette Finnicum. So that's how I would introduce myself. I got to know your dad several years ago. Um, over the course of, and I didn't realize, it was only really about uh, a little less than a year, maybe eight months of time where he came and um, had, had approached me about interviewing him about a book. And it just, you know, at first I was kind of ambivalent because, oh, it's an author with a book. But when he said the words, yeah, I was at Bundy Ranch in 2014, I was like, because he said those words, I knew this is an individual that I really want to hear his story. I want to know why was he there? What, uh, what was his experience? Because that had, had been one of the most profound experiences of my life. And for, for those who aren't familiar with your dad's story, I know this is asking a lot to encapsulate, kind of give the thumbnail sketch, but tell us just a little bit about uh, how was he involved with Bundy Ranch? How did it, uh, how did it influence him moving forward from that day? Well, it is hard to uh, just give a one-sentence answer because it's wide and encompassing. But he was a neighboring rancher to Cliven Bundy. He was on the Arizona side. Cliven was on the Nevada. And he would watch how um, the Bureau of Land Management would interact with his neighboring uh, ranchers because he knew that he would having those have those same interactions and uh he was considering the oppressive um nature the relationships and the land laws that were in violation of the rule of law and he watched cliven and his stand there in nevada and he did his due diligence and saw that cliven was subscribing to true principles as it pertains to the Constitution of the United States. And so he wanted to support his fellow rancher and his friend there. And so he did when it when push came to shove and that day that it's famous, well known as the Bundy standoff, he chose to go and be a physical body there to support the Bundy family in that moment of crisis. Yep. And, and I hope people understand because I was I was there that day, too. Now, I was not there at the overpass, but I was there that morning. And the, the whole reason I went and the reason I discovered hundreds of other people showed up was simply to show support for a family that was being threatened by its government. The government that's supposed to protect our rights and keep us free instead was doing everything in its power to uh, to provoke 
some kind of a violent response by coming and taking away their cattle, by brutalizing their family members for so much as stepping off the paved road. I mean, it was it was a very big provocation, something that came out in the trial, which ultimately resulted in the charges being dismissed with prejudice. And to hear Lavoie talk about, you know, why he was there, um, your dad loved liberty. Talk to me a little bit about the journey that 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 he took you know, through his life that, that made him such a staunch advocate for freedom? Well, he studied and he um, pulled himself out of ignorance through his due diligence, which is the duty that every American has to follow uh, if we wish to understand correct principle. And so he did that. And as a result, he was able to see uh, violations and circumvention of law, and he realized that he had a civic duty to maintain separations of control and to do that through his voice, peaceful voice, but firm, and to take a stand against it when necessary. And so, it, it like how to encapsulate his journey, it was just a long journey of study and him um, choosing to remain true to that. You know, and I love that you, you you note that he pulled himself out of ignorance, and that's a place where all of us are to some extent. And and we stay there sometimes because there are a lot of forces that try to tell us, you know, everything that's going on around us, the way that government treats us, the way it runs roughshod over our rights, that's the way it's supposed to be. This is This is just exactly what was intended, and this is normal. But people who study and who, who pay the price to really understand what are my natural rights? Why is it okay for me to stand up and defend those rights? And, and why should I petition, you know, for redress when the government isn't respecting those rights? It, you, you come to learn that, wow, a lot of what we were taught in school doesn't add up as far as uh, that, that mission of government being there to protect those rights. So he went about uh, firing like Cliven, firing his his BLM uh, range managers, the people that he, he worked with. Talk to me a little bit about that. I understand he had a very good relationship with those range cons. Yes, those range cons he uh, went way back with. He grew up with them and great relationships lasting for decades. And um, he just, his decision was principle. It wasn't based on the relationship. It was principle-based. And it was actually on your show that he publicly announced that. And I have that recording, so thank you for sharing that. It's a treasure to our family to have those recordings um, when he interviewed with you. But yeah, he just based his decision off of principle. And when he drew that line in the sand, it, the pressure started coming and he started being sabotaged and he recorded his whole journey, which is another great blessing because we have all of that documentation for his posterity of him taking each step very strategically and methodically. It wasn't impulsively or hot headedly. It was uh, done very prayerfully and he just took one step at a time. I think I had a total of nine hours of radio interviews that I did with him. And one of the things that impressed me about Lavoie was every time we would go to, to do an interview, he would ask, do you mind if we pray beforehand? And for, for some people that may not make sense, but for me, because I believe there really is an inseparable connection between God and liberty, I believe that Jesus is the author of liberty. Um, it just made sense that, that that's a person who respects God 
and who loves God and is appealing to God in the same manner that the founding generation did to to make sure that his efforts are in line with what his creator would have. And that's why I took him seriously. And I know that for a lot of other people, that's why they took him seriously as well as it, it came through that there was this this wasn't just someone looking for trouble. This was a person trying to stand for what's right um, against almost impossible odds. Yeah, impossible odds. That was a great a Goliath, a modern day Goliath. So and the, oh, go ahead. I, I we don't have to recount through everything uh, that that happened, you know, um, leading up to the Malheur Wildlife occupation, but um, that is where your father's you know life came to an end. Was was uh, about what twenty six days into uh, that uh, that occupation. We're going to have to take a break here in, in a minute or so, but. When we come back, I want I want you to walk us through the legal journey that your family has gone through um, to to not only um, find justice because uh, like like you I believe a terrible injustice was done alongside that uh, that highway in Oregon and and so I, I'd like to get an update on on legally where things are but also I'd, I'd like to in the minute or so that we have here um, talk to me a little bit about how you have heard from people what what do people tell you about how your father influenced their lives. Uh, we have heard from people across the nation and even in other nations that he, his story, seeing his hands up in the universal sign of surrender and being shot in the back three times and him bleeding out in the snow, no warrant out for his arrest, no law broken, and no uh, reason or cause to have this stop and ambush, kill zone, um, shock their conscience and then they go and they watch his YouTube channel and all the hours and they say, how can this man be shot and killed and have that be justified? And they, uh, their conscience is shocked and it wakes them up and they start their due diligence, pulling themselves out of ignorance, which is a beautiful thing because that is where change begins is when we are an educated electorate. Absolutely. And, and I just, I, I want you to know that uh, I, I think of your dad often and, and I still feel his influence. Anytime I find myself struggling, anytime I find myself wondering, is this doing any good at all? What, whatever I'm trying to do to at least be a good influence, if, is, it, is it making a difference? I can just, I can feel the voice hand on my shoulder figuratively saying, you remember we were born for this time because I know that was something he loved dearly. Let's hold that thought. We're going to take a very quick break. We're talking with Tara Tenney. She's going to tell us a little bit about uh, her family's uh, legal status as far as seeking justice for Lavoy Finnicum's death. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Tara Tenney. She is the daughter of Lavoie Finnicum. And uh, Lavoie's family is very, very dear to me. Not only uh, for the courageous and uh, just good man that he was, but uh, because I, I've really admired their example uh, after a terrible injustice was dealt to them with uh, with him being killed in uh, 2016. Um 
Tara, your family has, I think, taken the high road at every step. And I know that the, the, the road to try to seek justice for him has not been a particularly easy one. Walk me through some of the steps that, that you all have taken and, and where do things stand right now in terms of, of trying to, to find real you know, justice for, for a wrongful death? Sure, and thank you. Uh, my mother, I have to give uh, credit to her. She is a walking saint. She is a strong woman. The way that she was thrust into the political arena, global libel and slander, and she has held her high, head high with gracious kindness, and she's not one to roll over and just die either. She holds her ground in firm grace. Uh, We, after he was shot and killed, uh, as a family decided that we were going to pursue a wrongful death case. And the statute of limitations gave us a year to, the the timeline was a year to get the paperwork filed to, for a formal complaint. And it is amazing uh, the type of people who sought to insert themselves into our life. And it was a matter of prayer and praying people to us and praying for discernment on who to choose to disassociate ourselves with and who to allow into our vulnerable circle. Because we um, suffered with trauma and the ability to trust people was uh, very difficult. And so we went through several different attorneys. We filed the official complaint within the year, and then we ended up hiring on the same attorneys that represented the the Nevada trials as well as won the acquittal in the Oregon trial which my father would have been a walking free man if he hadn't had his life taken. So we had though the same team hired on. And then it was interesting to see human nature in play because the Department of Justice started applying pressure to the lead attorney, Marcus Mumford, and he ended up having his right to practice law in the state of Oregon taken away. So therefore, he could not represent us in the state of Oregon. And then he started getting pressure in the state of Utah. And then he ends up mysteriously found dead in his chair at home. And it's a mystery. And so Morgan Philpot, who was the second lead attorney, took the lead. And he, too, started feeling this pressure from the department. And his uh, paralegal, Rick, was feeling this pressure. And they ended up throwing him in prison. So he sits in prison at this point And... It's just very interesting to see how the key players who were successful at uncovering layer upon layer of corruption in these court systems were now receiving all of this pressure. And um, so now we were able to get our filing in just in time, but they dismissed with prejudice. And can I quote for you, our attorney, the reasoning behind why they dismissed with prejudice? Please do. Quite shocking. I'm going to read it for you so that I get it correct. He says here, it was dismissed on the principle of late filing. The whole princess of access to justice is that we don't make decisions on cases unless we get to the merit of the case. This is an underlying principle of the law. And here we have a case that says, ah, you were late, dismissal with prejudice. Your day in court is over without any merits whatsoever. 
And then he goes on to say, I don't care how many mistakes an attorney makes. If they are non-substantive mistakes, innocent, there is an entire doctrine in the law for that. It is called excusable neglect or good cause. If those are cited, the court is to hear the merits of the case. And yet they dismiss with prejudice. We are appealing to a higher court, the Supreme Court. And now our attorneys that are representing us, because Morgan was is receiving lots of pressure, so we were approached by the same attorney law firm that is representing the January 6th defendants, the John Pierce law firm. So we, we are so grateful to have him represent us as we approach the Supreme Court. And we are, we've had people ask, why are you having trust in the American due process when it is the, the very person who took your father away, right? But we believe in the American system. And we have a duty to, to follow its steps of due process. And we believe in the jury system. If we have a trial before a jury, we believe in the American people to hear a human story and to be able to discern between right and wrong. Whether or not the Supreme Court chooses to hear our case, we will be able to say that we did everything we could on this earth to um, have our father, my father, my my mom's husband's story, um, the trial heard in the court system. It will be heard in a different court system. I know that without a doubt. But we can honestly say that we've put our best foot forward. And it is conscience shocking when you juxtapose that to other cases like um, George Floyd, for example, who was another person, a human killed by a cop, and how um, the due process was so quick and it was so commercialized. And juxtaposing that to our story, it's really interesting to me and uh, painful to see the difference of response to the two different stories. The pressure that you talk about that these attorneys receive too. Um, I know Rick Kerber, I th- if I remember correctly, five different times the federal government went after him and tried him five different times before they finally could get a jury whose hands were tied enough or wasn't informed enough to to say no. Um, I know the reason that uh, the Bundy's case was dismissed with prejudice uh, was because the jurors were not going to convict. And there was also misconduct on the part of the prosecution. I know in the case of Oregon, you know, the, there was acquittal because, you know, the jurors heard what was going on. And even if they didn't agree with, with Ammon, or with the the rest of the people occupying that uh, wildlife refuge, they understood that it was the federal government that was in the wrong, and and they weren't buying the official story of these are the worst people on earth. We've only got a couple minutes here, but Tara, talk to me about how your father's story is getting out there. Now, I know Lavoy wrote a book. Uh, one of the proudest possessions I have is a signed copy of his book, Only by Blood and Suffering. Talk to me about the book that you wrote concerning your father's story. Yes, I wrote this to preserve the history for my children because they are going to have adult questions and I want them to get answers from the source instead of all of the lies told in the web and the news and the media. And so I did. I wrote a book to compile the history. It's Liberty Rising, One Cowboy's Ascent, The Murder of Lavoie Finicum, 
as told by his daughter. It's found on Amazon and um, it tells the story from my perspective and I recorded an audio version and it took like two years for it to be approved <laughs> but it, the audio is also now available and what's so sweet about it is that I included my father's voice. He speaks for himself and it's because of your interviews with him that we were able to have that so thank you thank you my children will be able to hear their grandpa speak for himself in this narrative this story that I have written and we've also have um, moving music that people who we didn't even know wrote and sang and it's just uh, such a blessing to have and so that really makes me happy to hear that uh, that those recordings are, are a blessing to your family because I don't believe in coincidences. I, I believe God guided our paths to intersect at the right time and right place. And Tara, thank you so much for spending some time with me today to, to talk about your father's story as well as your own. This isn't the last time we're going to chat. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I make no excuses for the fact that, yes, I do have an axe to grind with the legacy media. And it's it's more from a standpoint of, I just hate being lied to. I hate being manipulated through information. But that's the time we live in. I've got a couple of articles I want to share with you that I think could really put a, a good light or at least help you understand better why it's okay not to trust the media, why it's okay to acknowledge that our systems of information are largely broken. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not setting myself up as therefore the only true source of information, of course, is me. That's uh, the only voice you should trust. I am going to suggest, though, that uh, you and I both have this incredible duty to find things out for ourselves, to learn to vet that information, and to be able to sift truth from error. That's something a lot of people aren't willing to do. They're just kind of casting about looking for something that sounds agreeable. Yeah, 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 that, that looks like my viewpoint. And, you know, they'll run with it and, and repeat it like a parrot. So I've got an article here from Sasha Stone, who uh, describes herself as a blue check Democrat who lost her faith and trust in the media. And she does a very good job. It's a very thorough essay that she writes about how the media ceased to be a platform for objective truth and now primarily serve as narrative managers. They're there to keep you within the boundaries of what you're allowed to think as opposed to actually saying something. And, and she, one of, this is one of the cool things is she has the honesty to at least point out that, you know, there came a point where I realized that I was not going to be able to find what was happening. Where could the truth be found? She goes, well... I actually found it on the right. In fact, she uses Tucker Carlson as an example of someone who was willing to report on what was actually happening. And I think she's using the example of the riots in 2020. You notice how the media took this this supportive role. They, I mean, there was obviously buildings burning down, people being killed, you know, looting and destruction. But they had to take this supportive tone because it fits the woke narrative that legacy media is carrying water for. 
Anyway, it's a fascinating journey that she she outlines. And no, she's not some rabid right-wing ideologue now, but definitely someone who realized, yeah, there's there's a problem here. There's there's a big problem. So, I want to I want to share also an essay from Paul Rosenberg and this is this is just great. He always has a very keen insight. But his essay is called Information is Broken. And I love this explanation. Paul says, humanity is, is, is informed as never before. There's nothing in the historical record that can compare to what's happening now. But unfortunately, that's not a good thing or a particularly good thing. Paul Rosenberg says, the provision of information, if it is to bless mankind, must have quality control built into it. In other words, it must have a feedback mechanism with teeth. Barring that, it can spiral out of control as indeed it has. Consider that almost everyone in the modern world is flooded with information. Even the poorest people walk around with phones beeping at them a dozen times per day, delivering little bits of information. And for active people, the info delivery is far greater. Even the delivery vices themselves, smartphones, have become status symbols. But who is providing all that information and what price do they pay for delivering bad information? You see his point? The previous era of information delivery was dominated by newspapers. They provided most of the information for daily living. And that system, problematic though it could be, had effective feedback mechanisms. Newspaper readers paid for the information they received. And so, if they made bad decisions because of bad information, guess what? The newspaper would have a problem on its hands. Newspaper operators feared such events. Too many canceled subscriptions and they were in trouble. If too many people complained to advertisers, their ad revenues might tumble, and competing newspapers were sure to amplify any mistakes they made, further inflating the problem. So the era of newspapers, again, with all of its problems, still had strong correction mechanisms built into it. But who suffers for the bad information that's delivered these days? Paul says the answer is usually no one. So his point here is that free information has a cost. The vast majority of information flooding the world today is free. People don't have to open their wallets and pay for it. Broadcast TV is free. Radio is free. Facebook is free. YouTube is free and so on at great length. Cable TV is purchased for sports and entertainment, even for status as much as it is for information. And he says, herein lies the crux of the problem. Consider this, please. By removing payment, we've also removed an essential correction mechanism. Who is there to complain, for, to, complain to for bad information these days? When you pay for something, the seller needs to keep you happy. But when you're getting it for free, you're almost in the position of a beggar. You know, that one actually stings, but he's right. I can't think of an argument that could could refute that. Paul Rosenberg says, and and so we see, once people don't pay for it, the penalty for delivering bad information approaches zero. In other words, when information is divorced from payment, its feedback mechanism breaks. Hence my title, Information is Broken. Now he says, even competitors barely criticize each other these days. Because all of them are playing the same game. They can't afford to cast aspersions upon it. Under incentives like the ones we now see, with penalties being removed, the use of information is negatively transformed. In particular, the new model has liberated mercenary propaganda from its former constraints. 
Now, he says, I won't belabor things like the revolving doors between television and uh, the government, for instance, or intelligence agencies controlling stories on social media. Those things are easily found out by whomever wants to find out. He says, my larger concern is that there is no practical mechanism to penalize the delivery of stilted information. So information then has become a means of shaping minds more than informing them. When we gained free information, we gained this too because the two necessarily travel together. And he says, with that, my point is made. Now, he's pointed out the problem very clearly here. And thankfully, he also is providing a solution. He says, before I leave you, I'm going to give you a solution for the present distress. In fact, he says, it works for me, so I suppose it will work for you as well. Here it is. Unplug as completely as you can. In fact, he says, be brutal in this and turn off every notification and beep your phone can make. Then he says, one day per week and only for an hour or two, devote yourself directly and solely to being informed. During this devoted time, balance your news sources. This is important. He says, gather opposite opinions and favorably consider all viewpoints. And finally, he suggests, consider the past results of the news providers you refer to. Don't let their failures fall down a memory hole. Now, those are all solid recommendations. And Paul Rosenberg says, if you do this, not only will you improve the quality of the information you take into yourself, not only will you evade most of the manipulation thrown at you, but you'll make yourself far more efficient. All the energy you spend checking beeps returns to you once you're unplugged. Sorry, that one deserves repeating. All the energy you spend checking beeps or notifications returns to you once you're unplugged. He says, if there's a flood in Houston or there's an approaching tornado, trust me, you'll find out. There were no such things as alerts until just a few years ago, and the human species survived just fine. Being pounded with fear doesn't make you a responsible person. It makes you a disrupted person. So by doing this, you're making yourself the correction mechanism. You're playing an essential role you can be proud of. I just love starting out the week with a great Paul Rosenberg essay, and this is a doozy. It's really good. I become kind of a fan of Substack. And in fact, I'm noticing more and more people are starting to pick up and do their own Substacks, and, and I encourage this. Now, if it sounds like, well, Brian, are you shilling for Substack because you have one? As a matter of fact, I do have one, but it's it's separate from this show. What I do on my Substack account is non-political. It's a daily little two-minute truth bomb that uh, just focuses on purposes and principles that uh, that bring peace and and clarity to life. Not that this show shouldn't, but it's just, it's a much more concentrated version. You could sit down with your cup of coffee and have it uh, and be done with it very quickly. But the reason I have gravitated to making that Substack account a very essential platform for getting my message out, and the reason so many other people do it too, is they don't discriminate against and they don't filter the information that people are putting out there. Does that mean that there's uh, misinformation? Yeah, probably. There's probably misinformation on there, but it's up to you, the reader, to sort through it and to choose for yourself, meaning you can actually get unfiltered voices without having some media or narrative manager 
you know, making the decision for you. No, 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 no. I don't think you should be allowed to consider that. My point is simply this. Paul Rosenberg has the right in, the right idea. Information is broken. And oh, that's one other thing with Substack. There is a payment mechanism if people choose to use it, where if they're providing value, you can actually reward them for it. What a concept. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to the show notes that I publish each day, I make it as simple as possible. You go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. That's pretty easy. Click on show notes. Doesn't matter which day, any of the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email, and that's it. I don't spam you. I don't send you endless offers and endless, you know, chances to... You know, to be a part of uh, the growing Brian Hyde network, because it's it's not a big growing network. It's a it's a simple program. I'm a simple guy, but if you find interest in the the articles or the guests that I have, you'll find some great links you can follow that uh, will take you further and further down whatever rabbit hole you know suits your needs at the moment. Got a, an article I want to share here with you. This is from Brian Alman from the uh, Gem State Substack. Brian uh, did a really nice write-up on uh, Chloe Cole's visit to Idaho last week. She came and she spoke to citizens. She spoke to legislators about this burgeoning transgender movement working to seduce and indoctrinate our children. And Brian's essay is called Irreversible. We cannot sacrifice our children to the woke cult. Now, he says the reason that the Idaho Freedom Foundation brought Chloe to Boise last week to speak to lawmakers, parents, and fellow young people uh, was because she has a story to tell. And and she, you know, from all accounts, I did not get a chance to go hear her speak in person, but I did watch the video of her uh, Capital Clarity speech that she gave, you know, at the, at the Boise Capitol, uh, the Idaho Capitol, that is. Um, she really seems to be a very genuine, down-to-earth person. In fact, as Brian puts it, despite her young age, she's an eloquent and engaging speaker, but her personality isn't just for show. He says uh, he and the rest of the IFF staff found her to be as kind and humble away from the camera as she is in front of it. And if you don't know her story, here's here's the quick version. As a preteen, she started using social media and soon was bombarded with messages undermining femininity and promoting LGBTQ plus ideas. So she began to identify as a boy named Leo binding her chest, taking puberty blockers. She graduated to testosterone treatments and finally had a double mastectomy as a high school sophomore. But then she began to regret her decision, especially after learning about the psychology behind breastfeeding, how it forms a bond between mother and child. Now, earlier she had disdained the idea of motherhood as a young teenager, but Chloe started to realize the magnitude of her decision, the permanence of the choice. At an age where she wouldn't have been allowed to sign a contract, get a tattoo, or even join the military, Chloe Cole had irreversibly altered herself, literally cutting herself off from any possibility of someday nurturing a child. Now, Brian says thousands of teenagers across the country are going through the same process Chloe did, often after being algorithmically pointed toward LGBTQ plus content on social media. So for Chloe, it was Instagram. For others, it's YouTube or TikTok. 
Once the algorithm learns that you're a teenager, it starts presenting you with trans influencers who seem so happy to have taken hormones and gotten surgery so as to live out their true selves. Social media is designed to make being non-binary look exciting while normal is boring. Now, Chloe also mentioned that a lot of people she knew who identified as trans were on the autism spectrum, including herself. Being a teenager is already an awkward time. Being neurodivergent compounds those feelings. Brian Alman says you feel like you're normal, and then there's something wrong with your body that nobody else understands what you're experiencing. Then you go online and you find a whole community of people who get you in the way your family and friends don't. It seems like a lovely thing, but he says in reality, it's a cult. People who study cults explain that in initial stages, cult members love bomb their prospective initiate. They overwhelm them with expressions of love and acceptance, making the initiate feel like she's finally found her real home. Now, the flip side is that if anyone leaves the cult, they are condemned with as much hate as they were welcomed with love. Leaving the cult is portrayed as betraying everyone in the family. By the way, that's exactly what Chloe Cole has been experiencing when she stopped identif- identifying rather as uh, transgender. And he includes, a, Brian includes in his article an amazing quote from Daryl Cooper from Martyr Maid. Again, a great Substack account. In fact, he wrote on Twitter this week, uh, Daryl wrote, When I was working on my Jonestown series, it occurred to me that the internet might facilitate cults of unprecedented proportions. Rather than, that rather than a thousand people committing mass suicide, it could be millions. And he says it's increasingly clear that that's exactly what the trans movement is. It bears every hallmark of a cult, isolates from former relationships, demands total identity transformation, irreversible acts to display one's commitment, intolerance of heresy, severe penalties for leaving the group. It's not suicide, but removal of genitals is one step away. And he says it seems clear at this point that gender dysphoria is contagious in the same way that Tourette's has been observed spreading to young girls via TikTok. More experienced members initiate new accolades, Look up what they mean by cracking the egg for more on that. Daryl says, I think I'm right about this and that a Jonestown-style cult has infiltrated all major media corporations, the education system, and even cowed most politicians. Now, Brian Allman says, look, most people are going to find puberty to be awkward and strange. In previous eras, children would grow out of these feelings and accept themselves as adult human beings. That's the definition of growing up. But he says the internet changed everything. There was an old post on 4chan that explained the power of the internet in creating communities based on awkward fetishes. In the old days, if you had a strange predilection as a teenager, you either grew out of it on your own or well-meaning friends and family told you to shape up. Now you go online and find a whole community of people who share your predilection. You become convinced that this is a legitimate thing and you demand power and representation in society as well as actively recruit for your cause. He says, I've heard numerous stories of people drawn to the idea of puberty blockers simply out of fear of growing up. Puberty is a scary time for children as their bodies start changing and behaving differently than they ever did. Drugs that halt puberty do more than prevent cosmetic changes. Bones don't develop properly that can make people more prone to severe injuries than they should be. Brain development slows down, leading to adults whose minds are literally arrested in a prepubescent state. 
Puberty is a natural part of development, and interfering with it leads to a host of unintended consequences. But he says doctors and activists don't tell that to the kids that are pushed into making these decisions. Now, Brian says when he attended the Boise Pride Fest last year, and he went there as an open-minded member of the public just to see, okay, let's see for myself what is going on here. And he says, I saw a lot of people who were hurt and broken. Many were likely shunned by the popular kids in school, so they found strength in a community that celebrates what sets them apart rather than opposing it. They reject any suggestion that there's anything harmful about their lifestyle, directing their aggression toward parents that don't accept them, society that doesn't validate them, and the God who had the audacity to create them. Now, Brian points out when he was in high school in the 90s, many of the teen girls who felt like they didn't fit in to the normal high school social system presented themselves as goth. They dyed their hair black. They wore black nail polish, adorned themselves with heavy metal and satanic paraphernalia. They seemed to delight in shocking the older generations. But most eventually grew out of this phase with little permanent harm. Unfortunately, the transgender phase causes irreversible damage. Abigail Schreier's book of the same name, Irreversible Damage, is required reading for all parents today. The author interviews dozens of trans-identifying people in their families, and a familiar refrain emerged. A preteen girl gets a mobile phone, goes on social media, finds herself immersed in LGBTQ plus ideas. She tells her parents she wants to be a boy or non-binary, and they take her to a counselor or a psychologist to figure out what is happening. The counselor tells the parents to follow their daughter's wishes. Call her by a boy name, cut her hair short, buy her boy clothing, allow her to bind her chest, lest she commit suicide. That's the gun the transgender lobby holds to the head of shell-shocked parents. Transition your child or they will die. Now, Chloe says her counselor told her parents the same thing, though she says she never had any inclination towards suicide. The truth doesn't matter so much as the approved script. The goal of the medical system is to push children into transition no matter what. They take advantage of children with real issues, issues with fitting in, issues with identity, issues with self-esteem, and push them to life-altering choices. Oh, and they get paid, too. Last year, Matt Walsh exposed, exposed rather how Vanderbilt University's transgender clinic made big bucks on transgender surgeries and inevitable follow-ups. And why not? They're creating patience for life. This is why it's a multi-billion dollar business and growing. I'm going to include the link to Brian's Substack article. And I would encourage you not only to check it out, but I would encourage you to subscribe to his Substack. Gemstate.substack.com Again, you'll find the, note in my, the link in my show notes. Check it out for yourself. This is one we can't just shrug off and leave to somebody else to address. This is The Brian Hyde Show.